Welcome to the Whose Body Is It podcast. I'm your host, Isabella Melvin. In today's episode, I speak with Courtney Piper Cat Earth, a mother, birth keeper, and women's rights activist. Courtney speaks to the intentional upending of the birth world due to trans ideology and compelled speech, as well as the militant takeover of the birth world in recent years and its real-time damage to women and girls. She expounds on the dangers of modern medical and social trends, which strip the sanctity and autonomy of women and how these dangers are inverting our innate sense of community and even humanness. She emphasizes the critical role of discernment, communal connection, and embodiment in holding the line of light, life, and truth for future generations. So I am here with Courtney Piper Catter. Thank you for talking to me today. You're so welcome. I'm excited to be here. Thrilled. Would you please talk a little bit about who you are and what you do? Well, let's see. I'm a birth keeper. Uh, I'm a mother of two. Uh, I've served as a doula and a midwife's apprentice for almost 11 years now. I spend a lot of time these days speaking publicly on behalf of women and girls autonomy. I'm producing podcasts and, and vlogs and and doing various outreach and advocacy, uh, sort of in the political and spiritual realms at this point. And uh, yeah, I'm an entrepreneur, single mom of two. I live in the West Coast, born and raised. And um, I graduated, just for a little bit of a background, I graduated from Evergreen State College, which is a very liberal arts college here on the West Coast, and then continued my training at Birthing Way um, Midwifery. Uh, college and various other institutions along the way. So, you know, what I really want to get into today with you is trans ideology. Like how, why are we here? Why are we having this conversation? How did we get to this point? And more specifically, what has happened so that this ideology has spread and been adopted so widely within the birth world? Because I haven't seen the trajectory. I haven't seen the progression. I did my first doula training in 2016 and it was in full swing. It may even have been the peak, right? Day one was, you know, we do not say the words women and mothers. Um, It is not inclusive. And this is a modern doula training, right? Mm -hmm. We're in Brooklyn right? Mm -hmm. This is what is being done now. And so that was my like, whoa, like that was my introduction to the birth world. Um, Wow. So it was even before we started talking about birth and doula work, this was the disclaimer. And they made it clear that this was the majority view, like that all of our websites and material were going to have to reflect this inclusive progressive movement. Right. I call it new speak uh, or compelled speech. Wow. Isabel, that's, thank you for giving me that frame of reference. Um, Let me just, can I begin at the beginning? Just because if there are other birth keepers 
uh, like you out there listening. And let me just say that has not been my experience. I came into the birth community in a very natural way, felt very called to midwifery um, and to being with women while they're birthing in a very natural way, having had two children of my own, one in a hospital setting, a very traumatic and uh, contentious uh, hospital setting. And then, and then my daughter was born at home that led me into birth work and apprenticing with my home birth midwife. And from there, I was just really blessed to sit at the feet of so many elder midwives. And I still do. You know, I'm, I'm 44 years old. I was born in 1976. And I know that, you know, for my mother's generation and for my grandmother's generation and for all my, my uh, female ancestors, they never had the ability or the space to ever speak about themselves um, about their births or about their sexuality or about their bodies in a way that was indicative of anything positive or awe-inspiring or, um, you know, it was never safe to even speak of those things. Uh, everything, our births, our bodies, our periods, our rapes, our abuses, all the things that pertain to us as a sexual class, you know, which spawned the women's movement, right? You know, that it, so I know there's a lot, a lot of young folks here and we need to re-remember where we've come from, the women that have fought ahead of us to allow for these spaces, okay? Our foremothers who fought for these spaces. So as a woman of my age coming into my um, sort of my sexual liberation, not just, you know, sexually with, you know, sex, but with birthing and all the things that that implies, I felt like I had really arrived after the birth of my daughter, had these quintessential bookend experiences of having this home birth and having this hospital birth, and then starting my education in a really profound way at this, you know, the, the foot of these elder midwives and, and, and being totally slam dunked into home birth, which is amazing. Never in my wildest dreams, honestly, would I think there would become a day that suddenly using the word mother or woman would be considered hate speech or, um, or inaccurate. In fact, it's almost as if we got to this point where women as a collective sex class, women as a collective community got to the point where we were able to speak our minds, were vocal about our minds and our bodies, our births, our sexual autonomy, our medical freedom, all of those things. And then suddenly this agenda came crashing down. Okay. That was my experience when I was exposed or I was peak trans in, um, I want to say it was about 2016, 2017 when this started to roll out for me, when I started to understand that. So for you to say to me that that was your experience dipping into the birth world it actually kind of freaks me out a little bit because here we see now this entire generation now of birth keepers, women like yourself, who don't know any different. And that's horrifying. That in itself is female erasure, to borrow that phrase uh, from the book Female Erasure, and documents so many of these um, stories. It's edited by Ruth Barrett, and it's a compilation of, of you know, I think it's almost like 40 or 50 women's um, you know, firsthand accounts of this agenda trickling into their lives in one way or another. So that's a mouthful, but that's very, that, that just kind of breaks my heart open when you say that. I think I know which program you're talking about. The West Coast tends to be a very progressive and liberal-minded area of the United States, and we are seeing a lot of this agenda being spawned out of hot spots like San Francisco, 
Seattle, Portland, and Denver. Yeah, as you said, most of us don't have the perspective and the history of how this was implemented, right? And, and it's just, it's, it's so divisive in its implementation that very few women are asking questions like Jennifer Bilek, like where is the money coming from? Like how is this so, how does this thing manage to be so powerful this like you know where is this coming from and and i and i know that that you have a lot of information on that so so yeah would you would you mind talking about that that kind of infiltration into the birth world like who who was who's behind this how did this happen i'm happy to talk about this i talked i gave a talk on can i get a witness another platform just recently and my entire talk was centered around this very thing so i appreciated another format to do so another platform to do so So let's back it up just in general, in the sense that one of the things that I find extremely offensive and hurtful and just kind of erroneous and ridiculous, okay, is this notion that somehow midwives and doulas needed to be fixed or reprimanded for their bigotry, for our innate bigotry. This is a bizarre concept to me. Number one, I, like I said, I've been a birth keeper now for 11 years. I have a degree in social work. I have been educated and you know, uh, re-educated around cult- cultural competency more times than I can even explain. I view myself as a compassionate, open-hearted person. I give individualized care like most of the birth keepers that I know that I spend time with and learn from, we are women who are in service of women and we give individualized care. Meaning when that woman is in front of us, when that mother, mother to be is in front of us, you know, we're taking into consideration all kinds of things, not only her, you know, uh, her bodily health, but her spiritual health and her emotional health. And so a lot of times we are confronted with, with women who have mental health issues, anxiety disorders, eating disorders, medical histories that have contraindications, all of those things. And so to, to, to come at us with this idea that somehow we are bigoted, hateful, uh, close-minded people in general is just so ludicrous to me. It's, it's absolutely ridiculous. I just want to point that out. These are women who show up for women in the middle of the night and sit with them for days on end as they bring forth their children into the world. This is one of the most compassionate, giving, altruistic fields of work that you could possibly be in, okay? I don't know any midwife who goes in it for themselves or for the money or for the fame and glory because it doesn't exist. We do this because we have a love for humanity and that we are the keepers. We are the gatekeepers of the comings and the goings. This is a spiritual calling. So I, I reject that notion completely, okay? I just want to say that off the bat. How I became aware of this and the way that I see how this hit the community so hard is multifaceted. It began long before I was peaked. There were women that were in resistance to this long before I came on the scene. Namely, I want to appreciate uh, Mary Lou Singleton and her work, really being the foremother of this consciousness and, and really shining her light and, you know, and doing her advocacy straight away. Uh, she taught me a lot and she still continues to teach me. So, and Jennifer's work, like you mentioned, Jennifer Bilek's work is fundamental in understanding how something like this, how an ideology 
or a regime of compelled speech and all of these things infiltrated our communities. It is not by accident, let me put it there. It is a highly funded and backed agenda. And you can follow all of those roots when you read Jennifer's articles, okay? So I'll be very specific about how I know it, how it came into the birth community. In 2016 or 17, I'm a little fuzzy on that now, it's been a few years. Uh, I was on Facebook inside a chat room for the MANA conference, which is Midwives Alliance of North America. It's a really large organization. It's not a governing body, but it's an organization, a collective that represents midwives and birth keepers. Uh, does a lot of education and conferences, you know, throughout North America. And we were in that chat room and one of the gals happened to say something along the lines like women give birth. I mean, it was really this simple. Someone just said women give birth. And we're all like, heck yeah, women give birth. Woo, women give birth. You know, it's like our superpower and everyone sort of just kind of chiming in. And suddenly there was this strange avalanche of like vitriol and anger and people slamming us and saying that that was like you said, like you said in your, your training, that that was non-inclusive. It was hateful. It was bigoted. How dare us? Um, and it just caught us all by surprise. There was almost 300 women that day that were just sort of left with their mouths hanging open going, what in God's name just happened here? We were being shamed. We were being called names. We were being deleted. We were being harassed. We were all because we were exclaiming women give birth. That thread went on for a while and some of us picked it up and started, you know, you know, vocalizing how we felt about it. And that led to a succession of experiences, which in my mind illuminated that this indeed was not an organic thing. This was not about cultural competency. This was not about individualized care. This wasn't even about caretaking and making sure that we were taking care of folks, you know, in the transgender community. This was about a militant, direct militant, top-down dominator culture style takeover of the birth community in and of itself in an attempt to fracture us. When you look at things like the art of war and you look at the way that the military targets certain communities or countries or certain factions, a tactic to take down a community or a government is to fracture and to splinter that community. When you look at what has happened in the birth community because of this agenda, that is exactly what has happened. So you have to look at the end product, not initially what they presented as the goal or their virtue, but what has actually happened in the community. What has actually happened is that women have lost their livelihoods. Midwives and doulas and mothers have lost out on quality care. They've lost out on birth workers because they've, we've lost our livelihoods. We've been snuffed out of the communities. We've been harassed, harangued, doxxed, shamed, denounced, blacklisted, and you have to ask yourself, why? why? Why would an already sensitive, vulnerable community that doesn't get enough uh, you know, uh, support as it is be a target for this agenda? And that's, you know, that's, a, that's a whole other thing. But we saw this happen on the MANA board. And then that weekend, the MANA conference kicked off. It's my understanding that the MANA conference that weekend was unprecedented, unlike anything else birth workers had ever seen before. It was completely transformed from the inside out. A friend of mine who's an elder midwife described it in this way. 
she said, we walked into the MANA conference, we would walk into these rooms, and instead of it being sort of this normal flow of like women who are reuniting from all across the globe, hugging and kissing and talking about la la la, she said, the rooms were flanked with women in very like sort of masculine Brooks Brothers suits who looked as though they were like security guards. There was this presence, this overall presence of authority in the room. There was this, there were written mandates so that the presenters knew what they could say and what they couldn't say. And they were instructed to not use the word mother and to not use the word woman. And if they did, they had to buffer it with this other inclusive language. Women were asked immediately to wear badges, you know, <laughs> to signify, to virtue signal uh, their inclusivity and, to, and to, um, to signal their pronouns and all of these things. And many of these midwives refused to do it at the time. So right from the get-go, the structure was completely different. There was this authoritative air. There were people there assigned to essentially monitor the speech that was going on in these rooms, to monitor the questions, to monitor the podiums. And at the very end of the conference, something extraordinary happened. And this is what launched my first interview um, with a woman uh, by the name of Jade Viana Lewis, who has agreed to interview with me again, which I'm, I'm excited to do. I want to see how she's doing at this point. But at the time, she was a brand new midwife, a student midwife. And she got up to ask a question at the question and answer period at the end of the conference. And she asked a question that had to do with something around... Um, kind of race relations and reaching out to um, communities of color. And she was immediately shut down. She was immediately, she was physically removed from the podium by these like security type personnel, physically removed from the podium, forced into the corner of the room, told that she was a disgrace, that it was a shame that she was even speaking on this way. And she was told that her white tears were not welcome. This is how this woman was spoke to in this conference at a midwifery conference. And the reason that's, you know, you know, first of all, that's scary enough, it's weird enough, but essentially there was just this incredibly oppressive error around compelled speech, staying in line, staying in your lane, using the right terminology, the right, you know, correct terminology that they wanted you to speak. And there was top down administrative details that were implemented in the presentations such as there was a, um, an agenda to tear down Ina McGaskin. There were presenters that had on their presentations hashtags, things like Ina ain't shit. There were spaces that were designed and dedicated to talking about white privilege and racism and all these things. And I'm not to say that those aren't good things to be discussing, but the entire conference had this completely different agenda. And it was about policing and schooling and mandating speech. This is radical, right? This is so, that was the moment when I interviewed Jade Bianna and was just completely astounded that this woman that had been physically removed from a podium for speaking. And that's when the stories started flooding into my inbox. That's when people started coming to me to want to tell their stories. And that's when I got incredibly interested in what was going on in the birth community and the why. Wow. I'm, I'm speechless. That's, it's so interesting hearing you talk about what was happening simultaneously, because I remember part of the required reading for my doula training was Ina Mae Gaskin's books. Mm -hmm. And halfway through my certification, so maybe 
four or five months after my initial training, they made an announcement that they would no longer be including Ina Mae Gaskin on the reading list. Also, during the training, I remember this must have been just after, was it Mary Lou who put together the petition? Yes. Right? So they were in my dual, again, this was all on day one. This was all on day one. They were talking about this horrible, horrible, hateful petition and how disappointed they were that all these women that they liked had signed this petition. And so that, that you know, you kind of piecing together what was happening on the other end of it is, is so fascinating. I know it's going to resonate with so many women who basically who did a doula training between 2015 to 2017. Right. That is what unbelievable. What happened, right? Like, right. what happened? What happened to our communities? Women, when women come into the birthkeeping world, it's because they've experienced something in and of themselves, most likely their own birth. You know, it's transformed them in some way. They've come into their power. They've come into their knowing. They're out there wanting to help other women come into their empowerment, come into their knowing, into their full sexual, you know, expression as a mother. This is a powerful, powerful thing, Okay. Women are extremely powerful. And this is why, and I speak about this, uh, I speak about this repeatedly because I think it's very important to note the two hardest hit communities in this agenda are the natural birth community and the lesbian community. And the reason that is, is because the lesbian community and the natural birth community are potential hubs of power. There is nothing scarier to the patriarchy than women that don't need and don't want men around. Mary Lou did an incredible thing with that petition. She started the pushback. She started the revolution. She started the persistence within our community. And yes, 300 of us or so signed that document. It was not hateful. It is not full of bigotry. What it is, is an awareness that this is a systematic erosion of the language and of the community and the sanctity of women's work. If you force women into compelled speech and force women to use gender neutral language, language that does not describe us, then we fail to connect and conspire in the ways that are the most potent and the most powerful. When I speak to you, Isabella, and say, I am a woman who gave birth on my own, in my home, in the tub, in my full power, in my full sexual capacity, you identify with that because you are a woman. There is no mistaking that you and I are women. The first thing that a dictatorship does an oligarchy or a top-down dominator culture does is they take your language away. They take your language from you to break you down. So you disallows you from conspiring with one another. It disallows you from connecting with one another. You have to ask yourself, why would this agenda want to disallow us to do this? Why are they so afraid of us connecting and conspiring? because women are powerful, because women have the, have the capacity to bring humanity forward into a better new world. And this agenda doesn't want for that. That's not what they want at all. This agenda, this trans agenda, is directly linked to the transhumanist agenda. And I believe it is quintessentially an anti-life movement. 
an anti-life movement. It's anti-reality. It's anti-material reality. It's anti-spiritual reality. It's anti-life. It is quintessentially anti-woman. So what Mary Lou did was not hateful. It was not bigoted. What she did is she gave us a voice. She gave us a platform. She gave us a jumping off point. She gave us a community to find each other and to say, hey, something isn't right here. I don't quite know what it is, but I'm freaking curious. And my hope is that all these young birth keepers, all these young women that are embarking now into this field are questioning what's going on. Please open your hearts and minds and begin to question why you're being forced into gender neutral language, why you're being forced to accept that men can give birth. Everybody on the planet, including a cat or a dog, knows that men cannot give birth. Everybody knows that. Everybody knows that. And when you speak it, you know that you're speaking a lie. That does something to erode your integrity. We all know that that is not true. Is it true that there are female people in the world who identify as a different gender? That is true. Does it necessitate that entire organizations and that every individual within the birthing community conform to com compelled speech because one individual or a very, 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 very small percentage of the population identifies this way? At one point, I, I, I made a, a comparison. I'm, um, I'm gluten-free. I have been for 11 years, right? Allergic to gluten, it makes me sick. If I eat it, I get really, really sick. I don't go around to every single one of my neighbor's homes and every single one of the restaurants that I frequent and say, hey, guess what? I'm gluten-free and so should you. You have to be. If you don't go gluten-free, if you have the audacity of bread in front of me, you're a bigot, you're, an, you're, you're a jerk, you're mean, you're harassing me, you know, my identity is shattered, I might go home and like hurt myself because of it. It's ludicrous to think that because I have a personal need, an issue that is personal to me, that I would compel other people and force other people to conform um, to accommodate me. That is, that is essentially what we're being asked to do. And it's like, I think a lot of people, I think a lot of women in this work at first are just sort of dumbfounded by it and they don't want to ask and they don't want to push back because we are socialized not to. And that's something you and I talked about a little bit before we started the broadcast. So maybe we can go there, but it's like, the question is like, why are women not saying anything? We know that it's wrong. We know that it's not true. We know that it's compromising us in some way. So why aren't more people speaking up about it? I can really relate to being on the other side and feeling like I was a part of something really good, yes. right? The inclusive, loving person, like that wants to be behind something, that wants right. to stand for something. And here I, there I was, you know, paying $1,200 for this training, eager to learn, right? I was like, I was a perfect sponge. Right. My neoliberal education had primed me. My social conditioning had also primed me to always say yes, which is the complete opposite of the wise woman tradition. Right? The wise woman tradition teaches us to say no. It teaches yes. us to have boundaries. And you know, that, that tradition has been so lost that it has taken me 
you know, it, it's taken me, ironically, I came to understand Susan Weed's work in depth, like really going there during a fertility awareness training that I was then uh, kicked out of for mm. using to comply with transgender ideology. Oh, wow. That, the, there's a lot of irony there, but actually during that training, like that was a huge um, part of our, um, like a reading. And, and I really went into that and I, and I just thought, wow, you know, and, and this relates to surrogacy and prostitution too, right? Women are, have been yes. consistent to just say, yes, 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 great. Yeah. Everything is empowering. Everything is good. Like, yes, you know, and one thing that you, that you talked about in the, um, can I get a witness? talk that you did was the this like pitfall you can you speak to this pitfall that that women are falling into to want to be good right to want to be loving to be inclusive like where does that right and how did these boundaries get completely blurred wow yeah god thank you so much you hit on so many wonderful things uh let's see if i can do my best to address the all of those points I grew up in a very liberal way. I grew up on watching MTV and reading Cosmopolitan magazine. And I was obsessed with Madonna. Okay. I thought Madonna was this like the equivalent of, you know, uh, the sexually, um, you know, actualized mother Teresa. I mean, she, I mean, she personified herself as that. Right. I mean, so, I mean, I worshiped her. I'm not even joking. I was like a huge, huge Madonna nerd. Okay. I went to liberal arts college. I, I, I danced all night in, in all the gay clubs back in the day. You know, I ran in circles that were uh, gay and, and bisexual and, you know, had a very, very like liberal minded, progressive experience as a young woman. So I really resonate with, you know, I'd always, I'd always been a part of pride parade. I've always been a part of those things. Now, fast forward to when I became a mother. Okay. And this is where, this is sort of where the rubber meets the road. I saw a bumper sticker many, many years ago, which I thought was really, really kind of dippity at the, at the time is like this, this hippie bumper sticker. It said, peace begins at birth. And I sort of like looked at it and went, oh my gosh, what a, what a hippie thing to say, you know, it's 25 years ago or something. And I didn't really know until I knew. Okay. I didn't really know until I knew until I became a mother and until that protective capacity was enacted in my DNA, I didn't really know where do the boundaries begin and end? Where does the discernment show up? Why is it eroded in some women and why is it not in others? That's an excellent question. So many things go into play. Socially, we are con conditioned from birth as women to, to be agreeable, to be liked. That is part of our feminine virtue. That is part of like how we gain acceptance uh, in the world. It's how we survive. Women throughout time and history, because of our sex class, because of our biological sex, have been oppressed, murdered, raped, and burned at the stake because we are women. We have developed coping skills to deal with all those things. Fight, flight, fawn, and freeze. I do it myself. So here we are sort of caught in the crosshairs of this transhumanist agenda, this trans agenda. We are being pummeled with this idea that somehow if we push back or we say no, or that we have a boundary that we are, we're not good people. We're not good women. We're not, we're not loving. We're not kind. 
there's a difference between being unkind and being hurtful and having discernment. Discernment is what makes us mothers. Discernment is what makes us powerful women. We hold the keys to what's good or bad for our children. We hold the keys to what's good or bad for our bodies. We're the ones that decide what goes into our bodies. We're the ones that decide that goes into our children's bodies, whether it's based on the poisons that they put in our food, the poisons that they put on the television, or the poisons that they put into these ideologies that erode our sensibilities of discernment. So I feel you on all of those levels. I think that there has always been a systematic erosion of women's discernment. And that comes from the medical model in birth in general. Women are brainwashed from the get-go to believe that their bodies are junk. That they are not capable of birthing their bodies on birthing their babies on their own, that they need some sort of white coat authority to do so. Couldn't be farther from the truth. It couldn't be farther from reality. Women have been birthing babies by themselves in their homes on their land since the beginning of time. Birth is a safe and natural life experience. It is not an obstetrical emergency and it is not a medical event, period. Somehow we went from a consciousness that was explored and exploded because of women like Ina McGaskin and our other granny midwives, you know, from all over the world and from the South here in the United States, um, all of those midwives providing us that sort of like new age consciousness around holistic birth and natural birth. We went from there and sort of, you know, just on the precipice of kind of like creating these larger and larger communities to suddenly then acquiescing not to the white coat authorities, but now we're, now we're acquiescing to this other outside authority, this sort of mm -hmm. liberal transhumanist authority to tell us again, once again, how to birth our babies, how to be women, how to be women in service, how to be midwives and how to be doulas. I love what you said earlier, and this is the thing, the women that I sit at the feet with, the midwives that I've learned from, they are not industrialized, institutionalized, indoctrinated midwives. They are the real deal. These are renegade women. These are the women that defy laws and boundaries to serve women no matter what. These are the women that land themselves in jail because of their service to women, because of their undying devotion to service to women and children. So I see this as just yet another extension of the medical model. I see sort of these handmaids within the community that are capitalizing on this industrialized and medical you know, model of care. And then they're not congruent with the wise woman tradition. And I think that this has always been the split and this has always been the divide. And for young birth workers, you know, I had this question pitched at me at Can I Get a Witness? You know, what advice do you give to young birth workers coming into the field? My advice to you is check your why. Check your why. Is this your calling? This isn't a job, this is a lifestyle. Why are you doing it? Are you here for the mothers? Are you here for the babies? Check your why. When you figure out your why, then figure out how do you want to be educated? Do you want to be educated? Do you want to be enlightened? Do you want to be empowered? Or do you want to be indoctrinated? Are you here to serve mothers and, and, and babies? Or are you here to serve some other institution's ideology? Because there's, there's, a, there's a ginormous choice in that. There's a ginormous, there's a, there, is a, there is a consequence to choosing one over the other. Yeah.
Absolutely. And did, I, did I answer any of it? Yes, you answered all of it and more and more. You know, I think also tying this back into birth. I mean, yeah, my, my, my huge pivot even before the trans stuff was walking away from serving women in the system. And right. that I got so, even before I started doing that, I got so much shit for talking about physiologic birth as being optimal for mother baby, right? So that was also part of the indoctrination in my doula training that, that first of all, I should be, you know, this kind of blank slate, no judgment. I I think I know what it is, which training you're talking about. We can talk about that later, but it is, it's a, it's a large organization. It's one of the most trendy. It's one of the most, it's very, it's marketed very, very well. It's very, very well known. It's very hip. It's very easy. It's very West coast. Yeah. I, so I did it in New York. I did it in Brooklyn, but they're, yeah, they're everywhere. They're everywhere now. Absolutely. Oh my gosh. The branding is so good. My old business name, Courtney was the modern day doula, right? Like I chose that name because I was so enthralled by this like weird luxury postmodern culture around birth. It was so freaking weird. And my first kind of like, you know, ruffling the feathers, I had reshared a post on Instagram about romanticizing C-section, right? And why using the term belly birth is dangerous, right? It's it's a marketing tactic. Right. Um, and, and that opened up, okay, well, you're shaming mothers and women were right. posting photos of their C-section saying that that was birth, right? Really like yes. trying to redefine what birth is, not just woman, but redefine yes. what a there you go. birth is. So it was across the board. And I think it goes without, without saying that they were pro-surrogacy, pro-prostitution, like, you know, across right. the board, yes. these are the yes. values of of this organization, right? It's really, right. it really, it really wasn't, it, it's really not even specific to trans ideology. It's, it's, it's a cross. No, it is, it is. And I, I wanted, I want to jump in Isabella because you're hitting something that's so important. What you are talking about is queer theory. And I am not an expert on this. I would uh, defer to um, uh, Derek Jensen to, to discuss more of this, you know, around queer theory, but what I would say about that is that is that we have seen the rollout of queer theory since the 1950s, and it's slowly invaded kind of every nook and cranny of our psyches and our institutions, our educational systems, all the way down into my daughter's fifth grade sex ed curriculum. Queer theory is based on the notion of absolutely no boundaries and anything goes ideology around sex and um, sexuality and people's bodies. And I mean, anything goes. I say this with a real, with heartfelt compassion to my fellow queer family and friends who identify as queer. It wasn't always what it means to me now. Like I said, I know a lot of folks that fall under that umbrella, but I don't think that they may not, they may not understand the origins of that theory and what that theory is really doing out in the world now and what it really means. So what it's done is it blurs the line and it blurs these areas of boundary and discernment. There is a fast, just, just what you touch on. There is a 
ginormous difference between having a C-section and having a vaginal birth. Let's just be, just, just be completely frank. There is a huge difference between having an epidural and having an unmedicated birth. A cesarean section is major abdominal surgery. It carries with it risks to the mother and the baby. On average, a normal cesarean rate is between seven and 10%. You know, that, that takes into consideration, you know, may vary from demographic to demographic, uh, individualized, you know, health and, 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 you know, comorbidities that moms bring to the table, okay? But a healthy cesarean rate is, a, is under 15%. What we are seeing now, we are seeing standard 35% in most of the hospitals, okay? So what we're seeing is this normalization around cesarean section. And cesareans, not only does it carry risks to mother and babies, I mean, mortality risks to mother and babies, there's so much that doesn't happen and isn't allowed, it's disallowed to happen when you have a cesarean section. So this is the thing is they're afraid of us speaking the truth. They don't want us. This is, this is what I would talk to my moms about in our prenatals. I give them the data. I give them the anecdotal evidence. I give them the firsthand experience. This is what you need to know. If you go into that hospital and you sign that piece of paper and you basically strip yourself of your autonomy, they take over your birth. They decide when you have the drip. Pitocin, the pain medication, the hormones, all of these things. And then they decide when to cut you open, when to take your baby, when you can hold your baby, when you can nurse your baby, all of these things. They're disallowing you quintessentially that connection spiritually, emotionally, and chemically with your child. This is directly related to the transhumanist agenda. This is by design a disconnection of mother and baby. And why? Why? Why are they trying to disconnect mother and baby? Because when mother and baby were bonded, we know this as birth keepers. We produce oxytocin. Oxytocin is the chemical that bonds us, that creates that love, that gush, that protective capacity, that download, that I am a mother. I am the mother bear. I am protective of this being for the rest of my life. When we are disallowed to have that experience, our emotional and spiritual and bodily selves go haywire. Our children, it's not to say that we can't repair those connections afterwards, because many, many, many moms do that. So don't get me wrong there. But it disallows for that connection to happen in that moment. And they, you know, with the C-sections, with the um, medications, with the barbiturates, with the vaccinations, all of these things that come into play that cloud that connectivity between mother and baby is by design. And there's a reason for it. There's a reason absolutely. for it. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I'm so glad you, you're, you're going into that. Yeah, it's just a complete severing and, and just really sets the foundation for a complete mistrust, right? Like the back right. to the flawed, problematic woman absolutely. in her body, you know? And once you have a cesarean, you're most likely to have it there. You, you will not find an OB. I mean, there's, you know, there's a handful of them. They're mostly men who, you know, you won't find an IV. OB that will allow you to have a, a vaginal birth after a C-section of VBAC. I have a girlfriend who just had uh, a VBAC after four cesareans. Amazing. She had a home birth. She is, she is fire. She is fire. She, she finally got down to just reclaiming her birth. I mean, it, 
it is so possible and it can so happen. To answer that other question too about why organizations are jumping on the bandwagon, and I saw this well before the training you're speaking of. I know who you're talking about. I actually did some contract work for that organization. I was, um, you know, uh, very much know the organization and, and know the founders of that organization. This was going on before uh, even them. And sort of this institutionalized business-oriented doula work and midwifery work had been rolling out for a while. And for a lack of a better term, when, they, when those started to show up on the scene, I would sort of refer to them as the Tupperware, like the Tupperware doulas, the Tupperware midwives, in the sense that it was like they were capitalizing on other women's desires and needs, you know, where suddenly we're having this like in crowd, this group, this party. Um, it's like who the cool kids are in birth. It's like, can you mm -hmm. get the most expensive certification? Do you have the cleanest, most crisp contract? Are you making, you know, thousands and thousands of dollars off of your clients? Are you doing boutique birth? Do you have timelines and boundaries around, you know, uh, how you serve your clients? I mean, all these things suddenly became very, very bougie and very, very sought after and very, very boutique. But for those of us who have been in birth for a while, know that none of those things are true about birth. Birth is primal. It is messy. It is unpredictable. And in order to meet women where they're at, you have to be in service. You cannot come into birth and claim that you are serving birthing mothers with your own agenda, with your own preconceived idea about how it's gonna go, how it's gonna end, and what you are going to get out of it. That is not a birth keeper. We come into this work to serve. Traditionally, we are blessed by our communities because our communities see the value in what we have to offer and what we give, and there is a natural reciprocity. Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't be paid for our work. Okay. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't have trainings and we shouldn't have cultural competencies and that we shouldn't, you know, have these things, but all of these contracts, mechanisms, ideologies, all of these things get in a way of what truly birth is about. And it's about sitting and being with a woman in her most vulnerable and most empowered experience of her life. And if we truly want to see a humanity that is thriving and just and, and integrated and compassionate, then we have to go back to the old ways. We have to sit at the feet of our elder midwives. We have to listen to the women that came before us. We have to stop cutting down our elders. I have seen so many, so many of my beloved elders be cut off at the knees, including Ina May, including Carla Hartley. So many of these women cut off at the knees and called names, have their businesses stolen from them, have their likeness stolen from them, have their books banned, have all of these things happen to them because, you know, they're stealing our history. They're stealing our language. This is a takeover of what women have known from the beginning of time. And this is where you and I come into the mix, where you had your aha moment and you had your peaks trans and you started connecting the dots. And what they haven't taken in consideration is that there are thousands and thousands and thousands of women like you and I that are holding the line and preserving the sanctity of birth. That's what they didn't account for. 
Oh my gosh. I know. I know. It's a, it's a wild, it's a wild and passionate ride, but I just don't think of, I can't think of anything more important than there, preserving yeah. the sanctity yeah. and autonomy yeah. of birth, especially right now what we're seeing politically and the yeah. world stage. Yeah. I, I, it's just, it's everything. What you spoke to earlier about this really propaganda demonizing midwives, midwives and doulas that that really resonates like and how absurd that we as doulas and midwives our expression of our love for humanity is the strongest yeah and that this has been flipped yes it, it is that that part is mind blowing and what I've experienced and I'm still mourning is the complete rejection from other women, other women who have taken on villainizing us. And I think that is why this work is coming through me right now, even more so than birth keep is because of the evidence as you talked about, like, uh, which is the divisiveness and the division that has happened. And I mean, not, you know, not to downplay the kind of the, the, the community and the growth that I've also stepped into since right. you know, speaking truth around this. So I don't want to, I don't want to downplay that. I've had massive, massive falling out, out of the women that I grew up with and went to high school with and went to college with, I can count no more than three who have continued to speak to me. Yes. And, and, I, and I don't feel like a victim because I know it's not personal. I, I just know it. I know that it can't possibly per be personal because it's happening everywhere. It's happening everywhere. And, you know, this is the thing is that, we are, you and I were talked about this before we, we went on air. This is affecting us in our real lives. This is not an abstract ideology. This is materially um, affecting us. I've had rape threats and murder threats. I've been doxxed. I've lost jobs. I've lost contracts. I've lost numerous friends. My children have been threatened. I've been blacklisted. I do not practice openly in the town that I live in because I really don't feel like I can show my face in the birthing community here. I live in a very liberal, progressive area of the country. Uh, it's a hotbed for this type of thing. I've been extremely vocal and outspoken. So I just, there were a couple of weeks in there in 2018 that I was afraid to leave my home. So knowing that that is a reality for us, uh, other women, are rightfully scared. And yeah. I completely understand that. It's like, not all women can afford, none of us can really afford to lose our livelihoods, right? I know women who have, you know, um, yeah, who've, who've lost everything. I would say this to that. I would say that it, we see this not, like I said, just not just in the natural birth community, but we see it in, in the lesbian community as well. And this is an old school tactic to pitch women against each other. A lot of it comes from our own internalized misogyny, our own traumas and our own pain and our own fear. If every woman was left to their, her own autonomy and had been birthed into a community where they were completely empowered, 
there wouldn't be this type of competition and this type of, you know, dressing down and stripping each other down and, you know, virtue signaling each other. This is misogyny. This is the patriarchy at play within our communities. And it is, it's very sad to see. I felt like I've lost a lot myself and I don't want to downplay that at all. But in speaking out like you, I've gained a different type of community, a global community of advocates and feminists and birth keepers um, who have galvanized each other and supported one another. And in the long run, you know, it's funny, this should come up, but my, my son just said this to me the other day. It was very profound. We were having dinner and he was talking about him making a decision that he was going against uh, what his father wanted him to do. And he said, mom, says the bottom line is, is at the end of the day, I know I'm a good person. When I look in the mirror, I know that I'm living from my own virtue, that I am living my own truth. And, oh, sorry, didn't know I was going to get emotional, but at the end of the day, I know what is real and what is true. I have seen the power of birthing women in their full autonomy. I have seen women spontaneously heal themselves from sexual abuse, from domestic abuse, from the loss of a baby by way of conspiring and sitting in circle with her sisters, by way of singing songs and drumming drums and writing poetry and speaking her truth. Words have healing properties. Words are spells. Words mean everything. And for us to be denied the words that heal us, the words that identify us, the words that empower us, it's just, it's a one-way ticket into this dystopic nightmare. And I, for one, won't have it. Not on my watch, not while I'm alive, not while my daughter is living or my granddaughters are living. We will keep fighting for what we know is true and what is right. And we will keep fighting for women's autonomy and birth and beyond because that's what humanity needs to thrive. Inclusivity is large enough to include exclusivity, meaning it is large enough to include discernment. Mm -hmm. It is imperative that women find their discernment. Not only do we know that women give birth, and that is a biological fact, it's not bigotry, but we also know that it's harmful for people to take prescription chemicals, for people to be inundating their bodies with hormones, for young girls, 13 and 14, 15-year-old girls wanting mastectomies, altering their bodies. When I was a child in the 1970s and 80s, I had a real issue with my nose. And I wanted more than anything to have a tiny little, you know, Brooke Shields button nose. I'm so glad that my mother didn't allow me to do the plastic surgery and to do all these things to my body. I had what, what they would call these days body dysphoria. And I had bulimia and anorexia and I would cut myself. And it was a response to trauma because I had been raped and abused as a child and as a teenager, and as an adult woman. I internalized those abuses, and those things came out 
as personal harm, as personal hatred. I'm familiar with that dysphoria. I'm familiar with hating myself. I'm familiar with that. But I have to tell you that there is a light at the end of the tunnel. And as women and as mothers and as, as people that are protective of the comings and the goings and the births and the deaths and the children and all of these things that create humanity, they don't even address the root cause yeah. of what's going on with that human being. And I have a young woman in my life right now who I consider, you know, a, a god niece to me. And she loves me dearly, who is suffering with dysphoria and is directly related to her trauma. And I know that as her auntie, I know that. So I hold the line for her in a loving way but I hold the line. And no matter how many times she tells me she feels like a boy, I let her know that she has divine feminine spirit and that she is a woman and that she is beautiful and powerful. And I hold space for the day that she comes into her own and can exclaim that herself in her own power. That is what I live for. That is why I do this work. Wow. Period. Period. Let's have a forum and a place to speak the truth, to speak the light, and to hold space for women and girls that are coming up in this culture, to hold space for birth keepers and for mothers that identify with this and understand that they need this. I've had lots of clients come to me and say, I cannot believe I just, I just walked away from a prenatal and I was told as the mother to not use words like mother and woman mm -hmm. themselves like the from their own are prescribing yeah. this to clients oh yeah oh yeah are you kidding me yeah i've gotten I've, I've gotten tons of messages from women saying this that how uncomfortable they were that their midwives were erasing them that calling them chest feeders it, it doesn't make any sense it, it and it's so it's it's absolutely it's so uh insulting i don't know if you caught this on the can i get a witness interview but but there was a piece of paper that came out of the Midwives College of Utah, I think in 2017, around this time that the MANA conference hit, just kind of go full circle. And I was just swimming in this stuff day in and day out. I mean, I wasn't sleeping. I was just like completely just like a deer in headlights. Like, what is going on here? I consumed everything that I could. And there was a petition that went around. It came out of the Utah College of Midwives. And I believe it was a grad student who was um, proposing it was a survey that was being circulated throughout the birth community. And it was, it was a proposal to change all of the correct terminology for female anatomy into something gender neutral or other. Like front hole? Yes, like front hole. Like they, they wanted alternative names for our body parts because, because somehow identifying a body part like a vulva, a vagina, an, an ovary, all of these things, a breast, was somehow insulting or upsetting to their, you know, constitution. And so that we should alter. I mean, I couldn't think of something more ridiculous and scarier and actually dangerous. Okay. Mm -hmm. We don't talk about the danger in this. We don't talk about the danger. We don't talk about the disconnect. We have male bodied individuals, men who are taking prolactin and pumping themselves full of hormones so that they can like secrete a small amount of fake human milk to do what? to serve up some sort of like fetish 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 it really is a fetish and, and and like we're not supposed to use that word but that's what i appreciate so much about jennifer bylet she's like this is yes. like there is a straight up fetish involved fetish it is an obsession 
right? That has been normalized. Like the, you know, the, I'm sure you've seen the strap on breasts that, that, that men yes. can wear, you yep. know, and, and yes. I, the way that you've described that you're holding your God niece, right? Like that needs to be the standard of sisterhood and motherhood and care around women who are struggling, not prescriptions yes. for testosterone. Because one of the questions yeah. that has been asked to me a number of times with women who feel kind of like they, they want to support women. So they do want to support women who believe that they're boys and they don't know right. how to do it. Right. And right. so you and right. I would agree that the affirmative care model is damaging. Objectively, Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Just like a toddler. Okay. A baby needs to be held to feel secure. A toddler needs to know not to touch the stove or she'll get burned. Your teenager needs to know that you love her and that you're holding the line on truth and reality. If my mother and my family had affirmed that when I was anorexic and bulimic, okay, I was throwing up in the bathroom at school, I was, I was withholding food from my body. If they had affirmed me and said, you're right, Courtney, you're fat, you're ugly, you're disgusting, here's some pills to make you even skinnier, how about you just completely disappear? We wholeheartedly support you, young lady. How ridiculous is that? How, this, is this, this is the equivalent. I, and, and, I, and this is very personal to me because I have two actually very close friends that have daughters that are they're gender dysphoric right now or, or claim to be or who are going through um, some body dysmorphia. This is not unlike yeah. you know, what I experienced in the 90s. I grew up on Cosmopolitan magazine. I wanted to be as skinny as, you know, the, the waif models. I wanted to be heroin chic. I wanted to be all of these things. It's no wonder, it is no wonder that girls nowadays are trying to escape being girls. Girls have been trying to escape being girls since time immemorial because based precisely on the fact that we are oppressed and abused and raped and maligned because of our sex, women have always wanted to mitigate that and keep that, you know, keep ourselves out of harm's way. Now they're handed this like fantasy drug, this fantasy idea that somehow they can take a pill, mutilate their bodies and opt out of their oppression. That somehow if they identify as a boy, they're going to get on top of the patriarchy and suddenly be in control and suddenly, you know, have all the privileges that come along with that. What they don't understand is that they're, first of all, it is the opposite of self-love. It is self-hatred. It's a complete inverse of the self-love movement. It's a complete inverse of what pride used to mean. It's a complete inverse of what gays and lesbians have been fighting for, for inclusivity and for, you know, for, um, you know, being allowed to be, you know, out in the open and joyful and prideful about who they love because it was about love. The original movement was about love. It was about embracing who you love and loving yourself. This is about hating yourself. This is about altering who you think you are. This is about, you know, this is about being a lifelong consumer of the pharmaceutical company. This is about being so blinded by your individualism and by your identity issues and by your narcissism that you would allow or step away back from or whatever you know, your child or, or, or yourself and allow yourself to be castrated chemically and physically for your body to then suffer all of the side effects and uh, comorbidities of these medications. I mean, puberty blockers sterilize children. 
cross-sex hormones carry with them all kinds of comorbidities and complications, including, you know, brittle bone disease, heart disease, um, all kinds of mental health issues. I mean, it is absolutely just a quagmire yeah. of a mess. Yeah. And is. yet we and yet we have parades of people jumping around praising this as the, as this is like the, the most, you know, wonderful thing, you know, that uh, modern medicine has given us. And it is, it's so bizarre. It's so completely bizarre to me that we aren't, you know, like, you know, again, holding the line for women and girls and young boys and people that are gender dysphoric and all these things and just holding a light to the truth because as someone who has suffered from mental illness and, and body shame and all of those things and my own traumas, it is those people, is those women that have held those spaces and have, have grown into strong, formidable elders that have shown me the way to my own embodiment and my own empowerment um, and my own fruition of, of, of my total womanness. I, I feel completely embodied and free and empowered now in my 40s. So, and I owe that to the women that came before me. I owe that to the women that came before me. So, you know, here you and I are, and let's hope that this hits so many, yeah. hits a broader community and hits those young birth workers out there. They know that they have a place to be with us. They have a community. And like you and I spoke about this beforehand, before we came on air. The reality is, is this is the truth. The reality is, is that people know the truth. The reality is, is that most women in this field of work want to speak this way. I get hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of pieces of, you know, mail, fan mail from women all over the world that say, Courtney, I wish I could just say what you say, but I can't for one reason or another. So we are not the minority. We are mm -hmm. the majority. It's the social constructs. It's the social media. It's all of that, 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 that creates this illusion that we are the minority. We are not, we are the majority. The truth will out. And that, that's really, that's what keeps me going. And I think, I think women need that reminder that the truth is not hateful. No. How can it be? How could it be true? Right. And so, yeah, you know, right. I, I, I know everything that you've touched on today is going to validate so many women in their intuition in their power and and really you know set a foundation that that most of us haven't had in being able to actually then do the work right most of us haven't had these models of these elders and these sister and elder midwives and how how lucky your your nieces are to have you um hold them through through their adolescence and and young adult womanhood and yeah i i can't thank you enough for yeah for anyone listening you know as we've mentioned once you step into truth you know that there are women like us on the other side who are here right. to hold you right, right. here to witness you to answer your questions about without judgment and without, without judgment unlike the opposition unlike this tyranny that we are experiencing in the wise woman traditions like you mentioned earlier 
in this circle of women, we are here to hold you without judgment. We're here to hold you, sister. We're here to listen to you. We're here to answer questions and we're here to embrace you. And I think that that is something that's been in the forefront of my consciousness for years now, not just with the midwifery movement and how, you know, things have crumbled down with this trans ideology, but in the, in the greater world, in this greater perspective of what's really going on. Um, behind the scenes and as we come into the light and as we come into consciousness around these things we can have what we call a you know a um a healing crisis right it's like it's it's, it's almost too overwhelming when we begin begin to recognize really what's happening and so know that there are women absolutely like you know whose body is it witchandbitch.org there's many more new platforms and social media spaces for women to conspire and converse and to sit in circle and to learn from one another. And, you know, that's what I continue to hope build you and I perhaps more collaborations. Oh, absolutely. Um, I, I have a lot of ideas and collaborations with elder midwives. Yeah. We exist. We are, we and are conspiring. We are absolutely in absolutely, absolutely conspiring. Exactly. Absolutely. What they don't want. Yeah, exactly. What they don't want. We're doing it. We're yes. doing it right. Well, yeah. thank you so much again. Thank you. And how, how can people reach you? They can reach me at witchandbitch.org. That's the hub for my speaking engagements and my services. I do uh, doula services and consultations for um, birth work and loss. And I'm also a, uh, an abortion doula. So I do full spectrum care for women. And I do a lot of public speaking. So you can reach me at witchandbitch.org anytime. Find me on Facebook. All that jazz. Amazing. Thank you so much, Courtney. Thank you. Thank you so much. Blessed be sister. Thank you for this interview. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support my work, please share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave a rating and review. To stay in the loop for my latest coaching programs, hypnosis sessions, free resource guides, and more, follow me on Instagram at whosebodyisit.com. And visit my website, whosebodyisit.com.